Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This may come as a surprise to you, Jim, but we're not the only podcast out there that's talking about democracy and the need to defend it. That can't be true. I thought we were the only ones. <laughs> no. <laughs> One example is a show called Democracy Works. It's a podcast made by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, and they discuss ways to defend and reform democracy with some really interesting guests. Today, we're going to discuss two of their recent interviews. Threats to Democracy, Larry Diamond, Nancy Rosenblum, and Russell Muirhead. Today's conspiracism involves bare assertion, maybe like a one-word accusation like rigged, instead of an effort to carefully explain the world as it is. And it creates, I think, a polarization between people claiming that they own their reality and the another based on evidence and argument that's a polarization that's deeper even than partisan polarization. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? So, Jim, I'm not sure you'll agree with this, but right now, as the new decade is about to begin, to me, the two biggest threats we're facing are climate change and the push against democracy from populists on the right and the hard left in many parts of the world, not just in this country. Well, many parts of the world, especially communist China a topic we've touched on and we'll touch on again today. Today we're looking at two threats to democracy, one from China and the other from conspiracy theories and the erosion of factual common ground. Yeah, you know, I really feel like there's been an erosion of this idea that there's a common set of facts we can work with and discuss, even if we come to different conclusions. That that common ground of factual information is really under attack, and and not just from the White House, but really sort of across the board. Okay, so let's go to our first interview. Jenna Spinelli from the podcast Democracy Works spoke to scholars Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum. And their latest book is called A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Muirhead and Rosenblum argue that conspiracy theories have moved to the center of American politics. Well, in the past, we've had conspiracy theory. That is an explanation that works the way any explanation works, which is in terms of 
evidence and dots and patterns that often try to make the unbelievable believable and the inconceivable conceivable. What we have now is conspiracy without the theory. That is, the two things have become decoupled. Today's conspiracism involves bare assertion, maybe like a one-word accusation like rigged, instead of an effort to carefully explain the world as it is. It's, it's more of an effort to impose um, a, a, a kind of unreality, a, a, um, an idiosyncratic understanding of the world on others, rather than to describe the world as it is. And instead of being an act of empowerment, which is what conspiracy theory tries to do, empower people by describing the way the world is, it's an act of power. It's an effort to impose one uh, person or one side's distorted view of things on everyone. Yeah. And, and I think we can think about, for example, the 9-11 truther movements versus something like Pizzagate. Um, is, is that a fair way of, of kind of drawing a, a distinction between sort of the former model of, of conspiracy thinking and, and, and what we're seeing now? And, and can you talk about what, what the difference is between yeah. those, those two models? That's exactly right, Jenna. Um, 911 is an example of classic conspiracy theory. And there are accounts that come from the left and the right about what really happened. It was really the Jews or it was really an inside job. And they collect all kinds of technical evidence to try to make that claim about how the conspiracy happened and who its agents were. In contrast, we do have this conspiracy without the theory. And, I, and an example that I'll give where, that really excited me into wanting this project came on the second day of Trump's uh, uh, presidency after the uh, inauguration, when he claimed that it was the biggest inaugural crowd ever. And when the National Park Service produced, you probably remember this, produced photos that showed the crowd to be much less large than he had claimed, he said that the National Park Service had doctored the photographs. He had no evidence. He didn't have an argument. It was just a sheer assertion that this, that there had been a conspiracy to show or to make it appear as if his inauguration was less spectacular than President Obama's. And it was at that point that I think we both began to realize that one of the real consequences of this conspiracy without the theory, and you probably experienced this, Janet, is, was a radical disorientation, a radical disorientation. It was a claim, Russ talked about the imposition of power. It was a claim about that he owned reality, that the conspiracists owned reality. And we were left thinking, well, who does own reality? And it creates, I think, a polarization between people <laughs> claiming that they own their reality and the another based on evidence and argument. That's a polarization that's deeper even than partisan polarization. Right, and and the 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 goal, if I understand it correctly, is is not necessarily to get people to believe every word of of these new conspiracy theories, but it's more so just to like sow confusion and 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 general distrust of of the institutions and 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 the media and the the people who are providing information. Yeah, I think that is um, you know often often the goal. Um, it's certainly not to to equip us to really understand our world. Um, you know, that classic conspiracism, it starts with something in the world that many people have a hard time understanding. The example you brought up, 9-11 truthers, I mean, they start with the fact that it's really hard to explain how 
19 people in Afghanistan created this world historical event, culminating in an invasion by the United States of Iraq. Those are those, you know, are not easy events to explain. The cause seems really small compared to the effect. Pizzagate, the other example you mentioned, it. I mean, what is that trying to explain? Or, or the, the the park size controversy. Uh, it's not as though there are thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people who are confused about the size of the crowd at the inauguration. Um, it doesn't take a world that's hard to explain and make it more understandable. It, it takes a world that's shared, that's transparent, and, and makes it one that, as Nancy said, is very disorienting. Um, our sense here is that the people who are taken up by these political conspiracist claims are probably not a very large number. But what's interesting about it is that they um, they think, and, and they don't necessarily have to believe every element of the claim. The phrase that we use that I think is helpful is that they find these claims true enough. They're true enough. Even if they're not followed by, uh, supported by evidence, they're true enough for them. And that means that subscription to these claims really is more a form of political participation than the kind of belief in the accuracy of the claims that conspiracy theory tries to generate. And by lowering the bar, by even by even um, just obliterating the question of what do I really believe? What do I have evidence for believing? And replacing it with a question that's more connected to like political identity. What am I willing to sort of say? It's creating um, a new kind of schism in, in the political world, not just a a difference between sort of liberals and conservatives, the polarization that we've become very accustomed to is because it's creating a kind of like epistemic polarization where we no longer share a, a world of facts and events. That explains the title of our book. A lot of people are saying that the validation of these claims has nothing to do with argument or evidence or dots or patterns. It has to do with the number of followers. One solution suggested by Russell is the need for fact-checking and challenging wild claims with facts and aiming this effort at the large number of people who are sort of disoriented or who just don't know what to believe. And that's the population that we have to that we have to fight for. You know, evidence I think increasingly suggests that things like fact-checking and corrections does work and can work at, at disempowering misinformation in the minds of readers and, and viewers. And, and so I think, you know, standing up for common sense, appealing to common sense, insisting on evidence, calling something a lie that is a lie, um, and, and, you know, not using a word like theory for something that is no kind of theory might make a big difference with that much larger audience that's at risk of disorientation, not necessarily of belief. Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum interviewed by Jenna Spinelli on Democracy Works. Now, Jim, I know you have some very strong views on this, on conspiracy theories. So what's your reaction to uh, to their argument? Well, first off, it's just a really interesting interview, and, and they bring a lot of historical perspective to the issue, and it's a great podcast. I do have some reservations. One is this idea that there was a more factual, more fair-minded type of conspiracy theory at one time in the past, and today they're more politically motivated. As you know, I spent years, when I was editor of Popper Mechanics, debunking various 9-11 conspiracy theories by doing exactly what they recommend, by fact-checking the claims made by the conspiracy theorists. 
And I did not find a hint of sort of fair-minded interest in facts from the conspiracy crowd. In fact, right after 9-11 happened, all sorts of groups popped up with their various conspiracy theories, pointing the finger at whoever their favorite villain is. You know, the, the international bankers or, the, you know, the Illuminati, the Bush administration, Dick Cheney, military industrial complex, or, of course, ultimately, everything winds up being the fault of the Jews. So I, I'm not buying that there's been this big sea change, but I do think that the sense that there's some common ground of facts that we can all work with has someone been eroded. And, and again, it's been eroded by both sides. People forget back in the, in the 9-11 conspiracy theory era, this was mostly a left-wing phenomenon. The press showed very little interest in debunking it, looking into it, challenging it. Today, when some of this stuff comes from the loony right, there seems to be a lot more concern. I kind of want to say, hey, welcome to the club. I don't think that Russell Muirhead and Nancy Rosenblum were defending conspiracy theories at all, but they were saying that the nature has shifted and that even though they're misguided, conspiracy theories of the past were more likely to try to explain a worldview, not fairly, and they may have been crazy, but it was trying to explain something more than just saying what we hear now from the White House and other places, that the system is rigged, the media is full of a bunch of liars. It just seems that this is just a different type of conspiracism. Well, when people say the press isn't honest, you can't call it a conspiracy theory. It's an opinion. So that's not something that can be debunked one way or the other. That's an opinion that is obviously going to be held more strongly by some people than others. There are a lot of things that do emerge from what I see as the wacky right, the Pizzagate nonsense and that kind of stuff. And alarmingly, sometimes bits of that even get recycled by the White House, which is kind of scary. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And coming up, we'll be giving you a recommendation of something to watch or listen to, and also a second interview. And this is about the threat from China to democracy. Stay with us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And we're back with our latest feature, recommendations, things that Jim and I suggest might be worth following up on. And Jim, you have two recommendations this week. Yes, and they're both fun. One is this great podcast about astronomy called Starts with a Bang. It's by Ethan Siegel. He's an astrophysicist with a pretty big following as a blogger and writer. 
if you're going on a road trip, you might want to listen to two or three of these back-to-back. They're very entertaining. The other is a YouTube series called Birds of North America with Jason Ward. Ward is a really interesting birder from the Bronx who brings a great fresh perspective to birding, why it's important, bringing a more diverse group of people in. And no, wait a minute, wait a minute. You said something. He's from the Bronx. He's from the Bronx. When I think of birding, I think of large forests, not big cities. <laughs> to be crystal clear, you think of pudgy white people of a certain age. Here's a young black guy from the Bronx who grew up in the projects. His story of the bird that really got him interested is when he was a teenager, he saw a peregrine falcon eating a pigeon on a ledge outside of his bedroom window. And after that, he was hooked. But what's cool about Jason Ward is that he's an evangelist for getting more people into birding. And and as someone who's been kind of getting into birding myself, it's really helpful to make you realize this is something that anybody can do. And it's not some clubby, exclusive activity. And speaking of recommendations, Jim, and this one is definitely heavier than than your two suggestions, one of my favorite books of the year is Ill Winds, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition, and American Complacency. And the author is Larry Diamond, so I'm really interested to hear what he has to say. He argues that the world is in a democracy recession with authoritarian regimes on the rise in many parts of the world. And one of the greatest threats, he says, comes from China. He talked to Democracy Works, and we're going to hear a little bit of that podcast here. China is increasingly trying to become the dominant power in Asia, uh, the dominant economic power in the world, the technological leader of the world and the geopolitical shaper of the future direction of the world. China is becoming more totalitarian with repression of the Uyghurs and other minorities and the social credit system where you get basically a score according to how loyal you are to the communist regime. It's also using its growing economic and military power to intimidate governments in Asia, Africa, and other parts of the world, trying to set up its system as a model for others and woe betide those who don't play along. All of this is ominous, uh, and all of China's technological theft of intellectual property and other means of coercing the transfer of high cutting-edge technology which it claims is for purely China's commercial leadership in the world, is being plowed immediately back into the modernization and expansion at a dizzying pace of the People's Liberation Army, which is the whole military of China. So I think all of these trends have gone from being concerning to being alarming. China is now increasingly pushing not just its power, but its model of authoritarian state capitalism as a better, more efficient model. And China is increasingly, like Russia has been trying to do, seeking to discredit the model of liberal democracy and the universal values that lie behind the liberal international order. That is another new element to what Xi Jinping is doing. It's much more explicit and in your face in challenging democracy itself. I think what appeals to people around the world, our public opinion data show, is China's rapid economic growth, not its suppression of religious freedom, freedom of expression, the internet, and so on. 
There's no way you can sell that to ordinary people as an appealing model that they want to live under themselves. But the allure is that uh, somehow if countries can achieve China's rapid economic growth, and if China can downplay, minimize, or mask, which it is certainly trying to do, the intensely authoritarian and in the technological elements, I'd say, Orwellian aspects of its increasingly authoritarian rule, then that model can be appealing to people around the world because people want to get rich fast like China did. We've talked a lot on how do we fix it about threats to academic freedom and free speech on American college campuses. But we haven't really looked at the issue of how China is investing heavily in setting up institutes to promote the Chinese language, but also perhaps insidiously to influence the way professors and students talk and think about issues related to China's human rights abuses. China uses money to try and win people over. Uh, there's no question about that. And it's not only uh, individuals, but institutions. And so there are some 150 Confucius Institutes in the United States now, and several hundred more around the world that have the generous support of the Chinese Ministry of Education to teach language, Chinese language, on college campuses, but at the price of having the Chinese Communist Party State's Ministry of Education appoint and guide the instructors and prepare the curriculum and so on. On many campuses, if not most, this seems to be relatively innocuous, but it can lead to a certain censorship of difficult topics, and it can lead the Chinese government to use this as leverage to demand that certain kinds of speakers and certain kinds of topics not appear in the campus conversation. Larry Diamond, author of the book Ill Win, speaking with Jenna Spinelli on the podcast Democracy Works. You know, one of the things he said was that Chinese consulates in various cities in this country and others have funded efforts to protest against speakers such as the Dalai Lama, who are critical of China. And this has an impact on who students listen to and what is studied. I think it's really worrisome. You know, we touched on a lot of these issues back in episode 218 with Elizabeth Economy from the Council on Foreign Relations, who's a big expert on China. And I was so struck when we talked to her how much the thinking has changed. You know, for such a long time, we assumed that if we if we encourage China to develop freer markets and let their economy develop and, and we engage in trade and dialogue with them, they'd gradually migrate into the realm of liberal democracies like much of the rest of the world has as economies have opened up. Instead, they took all the money and growth they got from some liberalization of their economy, but then they turned it to this relatively scary application of power against their own citizens and now quite aggressively asserting their vision of how the world should operate, not just in their immediate sphere, but around the world. One of the most interesting findings from Larry Diamond's book, though, Jim, was how Russia and China 
are working quite effectively to undermine democracies in in some parts of the world. But on the other hand, the support for democracy, for freedom of speech, for freedom of the press in various parts of the world is as strong as it ever was. And, and recent polling has shown that among the strongest places where democracy is supported is in Africa. And that there, by very large margins, people support democratic institutions. And that came as a bit of a surprise to me. Yes, and I think some of the hand-wringing over the erosion of democratic standards in the West is is slightly overwrought. Brexit is not the collapse of democracy. Trump election is not the collapse of democracy. But I do wish that, in our country in particular, we had someone in the White House who was willing to articulate the classic values of American society of the whole liberal project. And I use the word liberal in the in the classic sense, meaning defending the rights of the individual and, and yeah, I know, protecting I know those you have rights. to qualify that, Jim. Well it the word <laughs> as more as more of a liberal, I feel like it's part of the same overall tradition. It was for a long time and then the left, the far left, hijacked it and went in a very different direction. So as Alan Dershowitz said on our show a couple of years ago, there's a huge schism today between the traditional liberal of the Bill Clinton model or the FDR model and the far left today. But I wish that we had a president who did stand more clearly for the protesters in Hong Kong, for people who are fighting for democracy around the world. When America fails to lead in these areas, it's very, very difficult for these these movements to, to maintain their momentum. I thoroughly agree. That's our show. And once again, we were listening today to extracts from another podcast, which we urge that you check out, Democracy Works. I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. And How Do We Fix It is a production of Davies Content. We make podcasts for companies and nonprofits. Check us out at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.